Business is a very beautiful mechanism to solve problems. But we never use it for that purpose. We only use it to make money. It satisfies our selfish interest, but not our collective interest. Mm, that's very thought-provoking. Which must be one of the reasons why the man who said it, a Bangladeshi economist named Muhammad Yunus, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. Uh, he was the founder of a Bangladeshi bank that made loans to poor people? So that they could set up businesses and get out of poverty. That's the idea of business being good for our collective interests, right? Rather than just our selfish interests. Eunice has been called the father of microfinance. So microfinance is about giving loans to poor people in developing countries like Bangladesh? Microfinance is much broader than that, in fact. But why ask me? In fact, let's ask someone who really knows what they're talking about. Let's do an episode of our podcast, A Dictionary of Finance, about microfinance. Mm, uh, will it be a micro-podcast shorter than the other series? Uh, no, but I might turn your microphone down if you make any more micro-puns. This is a Dictionary of Finance from the European Investment Bank. To tell us about microfinance, we're joined by Per-Erik Eriksson and Hannah Sielek. Per-Erik is Head of Inclusive Finance of the European Investment Fund, which is part of the European Investment Bank Group. Inclusion isn't just what Perik does during working hours. He actually took a Syrian refugee family into his home and earlier this year went to court to help them win the right to remain in Luxembourg. Hannah is Impact Microfinance Investment Officer at the European Investment Bank. Before joining the bank, she worked mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. An interesting fact about her, we're really lucky to have her with us because she was miraculously born to a mother who has already been sterilized. The chances of that happening are quite micro. Ah, another micro pun. It was a micro pun because it was only a very little bit funny. But anyway, let's start with Hannah. What is microfinance? Well, I think you can have the easy, short definition and probably the bit longer one. The shorter one is just as financial services adapted to the needs and wants of poor clients in developing countries. That's at least how we define it working outside of uh, Europe. And then you can have the longer version where you talk about sort of the exact loan sizes, which in Africa, for example, might reach only up to 10,000 euros. For us, the EIB, we look at loans up to 50,000 euros. That's still micro. That's still micro, mm -hmm. considered by us still to be micro. Uh, with regards to the clients, I think we look at clients who have a ve revenue-generating activity in comparison to consumer finance, which is primarily uh, salary-based. Okay, so, so it, is, uh, it is like a small version of a corporate loan then, then in the sense that it's for entrepreneurship. It's for entrepreneurship, definitely. I guess, you know, in terms of... Credit analysis, it's uh, very different from a corporate loan since, you know, loan sm uh, poor clients necessarily don't have audited financial statements. So loan officer will have to visit the home, the business, count milk boxes in the shop. Hmm. And, uh, But if you are one of those small people or as, actually, as you mentioned, poor people, what, when you go to a bank, they will ask you, let's say, you know, okay, put up your house or your, your mortgage uh, to back this loan, what does a microfinance institution ask for? Well, the microfinance institution will actually do the analysis themselves. So it's the loan officer that creates the 
the P&L statement or the, the balance sheet on its own by visiting the client, by also going to the family. The credit analysis in microfinance is much more based on repayment capacity. So how much money does the, actually, does the client actually have per month to repay the loan? Subtracting family commitments, having to send the kids to school, having to buy for food, whatever. So just having a mortgage is not going to help the microfinance institution because that doesn't determine what cash flow you have during the month to actually repay the loan. But Perek, uh, so it sounds like uh, doing microfinance is a lot more work for a financing institution than doing non-microfinance. Uh, so, so I assume that the financing institutions also charge a much heftier rate for doing that. Is that, is that the case? That is the case. I think that's the case both in Europe and also outside the European developing countries. And uh, it's also reflected in the, let's say, the operating uh, charges that uh, are ultimately reflected in the, in the microloan pricing. So maybe if a microloan will cost uh, 20 25% in terms of annualized interest rate, uh, 80% of that in some cases could be the operating charge mm-hmm. because you need to have a close uh, relationship with the borrower. Uh, also, the financing amounts are small, so there is a, let's say, a limited cost base on which you can spread the, the, the operating cost. Mm-hmm. Now, I imagine that that kind of cost uh, c- creates the issue of, you know, why are you charging such a high premium on the, the most vulnerable people? Well, I think to a certain degree, and just to sort of extend to what uh, Per Eric just said, just imagine, I mean, either you have a $100,000 loan which is worked on by one investment officer who gets from the client all documents audited ready. So the credit analysis probably takes a week just because he sits there, he does his math, and that's done. Whereas when you consider $100,000 loans, you will have probably 20 people in one month working on each five loans, and they will have to visit the client, visit its business, get references from the neighbors to understand if the client actually has his sort of shop or in, if people are coming. So I think, you know, even considering the salary of one person or five mm-hmm. just already justifies sort of... I, I, I think also I'd like to add, uh, in, at least in a European uh, context, uh, the main, uh, uh, let's say, target of the, uh, the activity is to enhance access to finance. So it's not so much to provide cheap financing, but to provide cheap financing to vulnerable borrow groups. So borrow groups that otherwise would have very restricted access to finance. So in, in, in the context of the programs that I'm managing, that could be uh, female entrepreneurs, they could be young entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs belonging to minority groups, uh, in general startups. And also, if you look at uh, the survival rates of the companies, we can see that even if they do provide quite high financing cost, uh, a very high percentage of the uh, borrowers survive over time, which means, in a way, that the business that generate the cash flow on, on which basis they need to repay the loan seems to be sufficient. Hmm. Well, that was, that was the idea behind microfinance, at least when it started to become quite popular a, a few decades ago, right, was that you'd start by, by giving uh, a small loan and then that would kind of improve the economic conditions until someone would not really be on microfinance anymore. They'd, they'd have moved into the banking world. Is that, is that the idea? 
exactly. And you know, I was managing a microfinance bank in the DRC, and we had a lot of clients who initially, when the bank started in '95, had received their $150 loans for maybe sort of buying a few cases of beer for their bar. And, you know, after a while, they got the $5,000 loan, $15,000 loan, $20,000 loan to open a second bar and to just hire more people and create employment. And, yeah, that's the... Hmm. Whereas if you went to the bank and said, I'd like to buy some beer, <laughs> that usually banks are not really... That doesn't go with, with banks. Now, you mentioned microcredit and... Uh, and um, uh, is that the only kind of uh, financing type uh, where where there is a, a gap where, where we need to step in or uh, what other types of microfinancing activities are there? There are also other types of uh, financial products that are covered by the general term of, of microfinance. Uh, credit is the main one that we uh, support, uh, but you also have... Uh, various loan products that should be available so people can deposit money if they have savings or to encourage savings. There are also insurance products. There are products for remittances. If you, for example, come to Europe to, to work and then you want to send back uh, funds to to your family who could be outside of Europe. So but why wouldn't normal banks, I would say, let's say non-micro financial service providers, allow people to... You know, allow everybody to create uh, deposit uh, deposit accounts, even if they're micro. I mean, w- w- why is there a gap still for for these people to be to be helped through by people like the EIF? Well, not, not the EIF. We do not really help to support the development on on, on those markets. But I, I think there is still a gap uh, for the simple fact that many maybe have needs that are smaller than what the mainstream banks want to uh, support in terms of uh, profitability and so on. So it's not so interesting to have very small depositors, for example, uh, because you know, it's, 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 I think, more efficient to have, in general, a higher average funding provided through depositors. Or the same for insurance products, that if, if you have a too small premium, it's not economically viable to... To, to run a business line on, 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 on such products. One of the biggest... Sorry, Hannah, you wanted to come no, in. No, I just wanted to actually come back to a point that Pe- Eric made earlier. I think outside of Europe, our microfinance clients are not necessarily marginalized groups. I think, you know, looking at Africa, I think the microfinance clients is the vast majority of the population mm. because I think there are few people which are with, with a fixed employment. Many people are just having their little small businesses which are immediately eligible for a microfinance loan. And I think in terms of, you know, if normal banks, why normal banks would not care for these kinds of clients, it's most of the time that the client doesn't feel comfortable in a normal bank. Hmm. African banks, normal traditional banks, are freezing cold inside. Hmm. You know, if a poor person comes in without shoes, I think he's going to be looked at awkwardly. So he, doesn't, he just doesn't walk inside. So all the microfinance institutions that I know and the one I was managing in DRC, you don't have bars on the windows. People can look inside since this whole bank is sort of a black box for them. They don't understand what's going to happen with my money. So you need this sort of accessibility. And normally also the loan officer is going to come search for the client. It's not the client going to the bank and saying, hey, I need a loan. Mm. It's normally the loan officer who is searching for the client, which is something which sort of in banking is 
even today, I mean, in Europe, it's primarily you go to the bank if you need a loan. It's rarely somebody coming to your door telling you, you know, we have this on offer and wouldn't you like to benefit from this? Yeah, it sounds like a very aggressive selling tactic if you were to describe a a traditional bank in Europe doing that, you know, going around saying, you know, do you you want money? You know, I can give you money, 25% per year. Yeah, aggressive, but to a certain (laughs) degree also, you know, a poor person might not know what the bank has on offer. And, Mm -hmm. you know, since... I think for many low-income clients, it's the first time exposure to a financial institution. And there is actually a lot of sort of, con- or you have to convince the client to actually leave the money in a, in a savings account with the bank or to, I mean, ma- taking money is always easier, but I think one, one group that might also be doubly less likely to go into the bank would be women. A lot of because of uh, social expectations and so on in a lot of countries. In outside Europe, it seems like that is one of the focuses of microfinance is, is uh, gender and women. Why is that? Well, there has been a lot of studies on you know why there are a lot of microfinance institutions sometimes exclusively lending to women, which I personally also do not really agree with. I think you know we need both; otherwise, they're discriminating men. But I think women are normally, in Af- at, least, at least in African families, are the ones managing the financials of the family. So it's the. So, so they're actually better with money. They are better with money, and they also care, yeah, and they care bit more for. They know that they will have to pay school fees. They know that, ooh, you know, my kid might fall sick at some point, so I need some money to sort of to save to cover the medication cost. So for that reason, women will normally choose projects to be financed which are less risky and for that reason they will be better able to repay these loans whereas men you know uh, we, we, I can do this big project potential high, potentially high risk and they might sometimes sort of just go overboard in terms of what they can do and then the project falls into default. Huh. I, I don't recognize that as a male trait do you? <laughs> well I, I suppose it must be it's true. I have also one, one comment on that from the European perspective because also um, as part of the EU programs it's a key priority to encourage female entrepreneurship and uh, I think on average only around 30% of the uh, entrepreneurs or the individual self-employed are actually females and uh, it's actually quite difficult to, to increase that uh, Percentage from at least from our perspective, because we, we cannot uh, control the demand, we cannot really control who comes to uh, you know seek a credit. And it seems that there are more male borrowers than, than female borrowers in general who come to seek financing. So, to, to, to have a very quick big shift in that percentage, I think, is, is, is quite unlikely. Eric, you talked earlier about uh, you know, vulnerable groups and so on, yeah. and who youth and the unemployed and so on. But there are also um, aspects of, of microfinance in Europe, in particular, that deal with um, migratory groups. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How that works? Uh, yes, that is also one uh, big uh, uh, borrow group for uh, the so-called non-bank microfinance institutions in in Europe. There are some lenders that I'm aware of in, in Italy, for example, that almost exclusively lend to minority groups. And, and um, uh, often there is a reluctance among banks to lend to, to migrants because they are seen as more risky or they are seen as more, in a way, um, 
volatile or they can you know simply just disappear you know when when the banks ask for the repayment and often they can also uh, need additional uh, services in addition to just the financing often the microcredits are combined with what is called business development services you get the financing but you also get certain types of advice and um, that could for example be advice about the um, the local uh, legislation. There could be some advice about how to draft a business plan. If you're a migrant, maybe there's also some, in some cases, some language barriers to 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 cross. So um, it is a vulnerable group for uh, for uh, for quite obvious reasons. Are there any specific requirements that we that we only provide for financing of? Um of entrepreneurship, of of agriculture, but you know, but not not the guy who wants to to buy beer for the bar, or I mean. But well, I think in general, as I said, we want our our clients, our final beneficiaries, which, which are sort of served by the intermediaries we finance, to have a re- revenue generating activity. So it doesn't really matter if it's you know selling furniture or if it's selling like a small supermarket but should that money that they that they lend go into that generating uh, cash generating activity yes. or going out okay yes. okay and i think that's important and also i think the the financial intermediary will make sure that the loan purpose is being discussed and is being also monitored by the loan officer mm-hmm. So once the loan is dispersed to the final beneficiary, the loan officer will come probably twice a year to visit the client and see how many, I don't know, chairs he bought for his restaurant or mm-hmm. if, if the, the fridge was, was actually bought. Mm-hmm. But I think at the EIB, we also, I, I'm managing an ACP smallholder financing facility where we finance agriculture. So we refinance the agricultural portfolios of microfinance service providers. And there we have unfortunately a lot of restrictions in terms of what kinds of agriculture we want to support in terms of fertilizer usage mm. and uh, pesticides and I think uh, it's complicated to finance them but I think once we, we get it through because we're working with our colleagues in the sort of more technical departments here because I'm not an agriculture agronomist so I need their support to help, mm. to help me on the whole um, agricultural part but I think, uh, especially agriculture, seems to be a nut outside of Europe, which we haven't been able to to open mm. yet. Because but what kind of impact has microfinance had? You know, I've read a lot of big numbers about, for example, the you know the Bangladeshi bank with seven million women clients and so on. But what kind of impact can we talk about? Let's say outside the European Union of microfinance? Well, I think there were a lot of, many studies questioned act, actually the impact on final beneficiaries, revenues, or asset accumulation. And uh, it really depends on what expectation you put on microfinance. What do you want it to solve? I think a lot of, most, most people say poverty alleviation. Okay. Others say, you know, I want higher income for my clients. But I think all these studies, longitudinal studies of three to four years, show that there was sometimes no impact at all on clients. I am personally convinced there is an impact. I mean, I've been working in the DRC for three years. I saw that it has an impact on people. Not necessarily it pulls them directly in within three years out of poverty. That's in Congo. That's in Congo, yeah. yes. But it will... Um, but it will make their lives a lot easier. They ha- might have some money in their savings account to care for emergencies, 
to pay for whatever it might be, to send their kids to school, to receive money from their kids going to university in another town or working in another town. So I think, um, for me, I mean, honestly, I think the impact is clear. However, I think the expectation was too high, especially with Mohamed Yunus, the one you just mentioned, the Bangladeshi bank, sort of hyping up microfinance, especially after him winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. There was a lot of expectation being raised for microfinance. So microfinance was not only providing access to finance, it was doing health, it was working for the youth. Providing peace, basically. Yeah, exactly. So I think... It's difficult to work on all these ends. In other words, some people are talking about microfinance as something that can have people on an upward trajectory economically. Others are just saying, as you seem to be saying, that it, it helps people get through. Yeah, it and helps it takes people get time. Along. I think it's mm -hmm. not the three, four years that's gonna, that are going to pull somebody out of poverty. It's going to probably take a generation to actually sh provide real evidence that somebody got out of poverty. But Peric, I understand there's a there's a discussion going on about whether the the rates on um, on those micro loans should be capped. You know, which you know it sounds nice because you you know you, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, burden these poor people with uh, exorbitant rates on on the financing. What's 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 the discussion ab about these uh, caps on the rate rates? Um, what does that circle around? It mainly circles around uh, reputational risk because it's seen as uh, exposing, in, in this case, in my case, European Investment Fund to, to reputational risk if we finance indirectly financial intermediaries who then charge high interest rates. Uh, I'm personally against interest rate ceilings. Uh, I know that there are a number of countries in Europe where there are interest rate ceilings. There are interest rate ceilings, for example, in, uh, in Poland. I think there are some quite generous interest rate ceilings in, in the UK. There are also interest rate ceilings in Italy and uh, in Bulgaria. But and so, so these interest rate ceilings that countries have put in place, they don't distinguish between uh, just somebody giving a, a very expensive consumer loan just to buy a, a nice TV and between somebody who really lacks opportunities with a normal bank of getting uh, financing that they need. That is, that is correct. And, and we discussed before the issue uh, of operating costs. And many of the providers of microcredit to vulnerable borrower groups, they have high operating costs. And that is often not considered in the setting of the interest rate ceilings. The interest rate ceilings are often tailored to mainstream banks or to the maybe 99% of the, the banking business. But we are targeting the 1% that wants to deliver an impact. And as a result of this, often we see that the financial intermediaries get into trouble because one way or another, they have to pass on the costs. So for example, if you significantly uh, limit the ability of financial institutions to set a reasonable interest rate, then they will start charging high fees. Mm -hmm. And then those fees will be passed on to mm -hmm. the Microborrowers, so it means that you, in a way, front load the cost because fees are often charged up front. So yeah. So that in that in that case, they have to pay before they actually have the ability to start generating some more cash with with the financing. Yeah. And and I I, um, uh, I assume uh, the 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 outcome of that that kind of policy could very well be that the financial intermediaries providing microfinance, if they uh, stop being able to do that due to the ceilings, 
you know, they'll go out of business and some of these people really desperate for financing, they'll just go underground for some sh more shady types of yes, financing. Yes, then we, then we come into the, let's say, the, the loan shark uh, business model, uh, which also uh, exists in many countries and where uh, actually borrowers would be facing certain risks, you know, if they don't uh, repay. So that is also something I think one should consider when, when, when we are talking about interest rate ceilings. And one additional reason one, one, what, why one should avoid, to the extent possible, setting such ceilings. Mm -hmm. One final thing, because we should close fairly soon, is I wanted to ask you about the future of microfinance. And, you know, we have a lot of technological changes going on at the moment. And Hannah, in Africa, for example, I'm, I'm sure that, that technology could actually be very important in bringing together people who at the moment might not be able to get access to finance. Yeah, who, those who don't want to go into that cold bank. Sometimes they don't want to, but it might also just be that the distance between where the client lives and the branch is just too far. That doesn't make sense to travel for three hours to deposit their funds. So there we, uh, something that is coming up or which has been sort of an innovative tool to sort of bridge that that gap is mobile banking, which started pretty much in Kenya. Or Kenya is sort of the the spotlight of mobile banking, where M-Pesa, a mobile money service, has, has increased uh, mobile uh, access to finance tremendously during the last years. And we are currently actually looking at... Uh, at an SME in Ethiopia who's providing the same kinds of services. So clients can access their, ban their, mo their bank account over the mobile phone. So rather than going into the branch, they will interact with an agent, an agent being a retail outlet, i.e. a small shop or a pharmacy, a restaurant, where they can deposit funds or withdraw from their account and don't have to travel maybe three hours to the branch and stand in line for two. Is that kind of technology going to be important in Europe as well, do you think, with microfinance? Yes, I think so. We already see such trends. There are more uh, examples of so-called peer-to-peer lenders. So in general, people want to maybe put aside part of their savings and support the, the micro-credit uh, segment more from an ethical point of view. And then they can actually use the deposit to provide a, a micro-loans directly themselves. And uh, there are um, also, uh, in, in other fields, uh, a similar development, for example, for general SME lending or for, for lending to social enterprises, where, where platforms are set up to channel funds from retail investors and direct those to the microcredit uh, uh, to the entrepreneurs. Fantastic. Well, microfinance is, is macro-interesting, isn't it? So, Hannah and Pa-Eric, thank you so much for being here on A Dictionary of Finance. This was A Dictionary of Finance from the European Investment Bank in Luxembourg. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for financial terms that we could talk about with our experts on future episodes. So you can get in touch with me on Twitter at EIBMATT, E-I-B-M-A-T-T, Or, if you like the sound of Alar's voice better, you could be in touch with him. He's a, a handsome, intelligent fellow. And, uh, you know, you can get in touch with him at, at 
especially if you like long Twitter handles. That is, uh, I'm at Allartankler. That's A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. But no underscores or anything like that. No, yeah, It's very simple and straightforward. It's not that bad, and there's no numbers to remember. So we'll see you next time on A Dictionary of Finance. Thank you.